Let's start what we have come into the room to do. <laughs> right on. Here goes. One, two, three. Hello, Ann Arbor and the world. This is It's Hot in Here, your WCBN show, bringing you environmental news, views, and grooves from the School of Natural Resources and Environment, students, faculty, as well as the many practitioners in Southeast Michigan and beyond. My name is Andrea Kraus, and I'm here with my fellow co-hosts, Becca Baylor, as well as Dr. Rebecca Hardin. Today's show will be focusing on freshwater health. We will be hearing from an SNRE master's student who is studying muskies in Lake St. Clair, as well as another SNRE master's student whose master's project team is evaluating different methods of preventing non-point source pollution. And we will be digging into what exactly that even means. And finally, we'll be hearing from the Ann Arbor nonprofit, the Huron River Watershed Council, about their programs, which educate and engage the public with their watershed. That sounds fresh, Andrea. Yes. (laughs) So with that theme of all the freshness, um, we thought, you know, a great song to kick the show off with today is uh, Cool in the Gangs. Fresh. She's so fresh. I'm excited. Yes. So let's go there now.
welcome back. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's it's hot in here today. We've got a wonderful show ahead of you. We're talking about freshwater health, and we've got in the studio Ellen Spooner, a master's student at the School of Natural Resources, studying conservation ecology. Hello, Ellen. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm doing great. It's good to be in the studio. Although it is a beautiful day outside, I have to say. It's a tough day to be in this hot studio when it's also warm outside. And the sun's out. I love it. I know, right? Right? We'll be out there. Yes. Okay. So speaking of in-studio, what can you tell us a little bit more about what you're studying, Ellen, in relation to freshwater? I would love to. Uh, so my thesis project is titled Food Habits of Muscalunge in Lake St. Clair. Um, okay, wait. Muscul- wait, muskies? Muscalunge? You got to yes. unpack. You musky tell us more about <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Yeah. For those of us who are not ecologists. All right. So just to introduce, uh, muskies is short for muscalunge, and they are a top predatory fish in throughout the Great Lakes. Wow. Predators. I wouldn't have guessed that necessarily. I was thinking maybe mollusk, bivalve, something, but okay. Yes, they are fairly large fish, usually around three, they can get up to four feet long. Wow. Yeah, and they have pretty sharp teeth. Um, <gasps> so that's something I've had to be careful of while working with them. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, are we talking, I mean, like big fish, small fish? Like they're, I mean, like big enough that they're kind of scary to look at and handle and manage or? Yeah, you definitely have to be careful when you're dealing with them. A lot of the times I wear gloves as a protective measure. Um, and they don't like to be handled, so you have to be careful to stay away from their mouth or just know how to place your hands. Wow. So what are you studying about them? So I am looking at the species that they are eating, so their diet composition, and I'm trying to determine if larger fish are targeting certain species versus smaller fish or if they are just generalists in order to determine their role in the larger ecosystem and their impacts on other fish populations. Okay. You said that the muskies are found throughout the Great Lakes. Where are you studying throughout the Great Lakes, or where are you looking at these muskie populations? So I am focusing in on Lake St. Clair because um, that is a area where there's world-renowned sports fishing for muskies, so there's a large interest in that population. And it's also just to narrow down my scope so that I can finish within my allotted time. Uh, feasibility. <laughs> yes. Always good. Now, are these good eating fish or good just trophy fish? Or what's this? Why are people, why do people want to catch them? So the draw with muskies is not to eat them. Um, most muskie fishermen want to catch the biggest one. There are lots of tournaments, um, and whoever catches the biggest one gets a trophy. And so there was actually a really interesting, um, regulation that was put in place through the muskie fishermen. Um, There's a catch limit on the size that you're allowed to take and take home, and the muskie fishermen wanted to increase that size. So they approached the DNR and told them their idea, and the DNR liked it. And they were like, yeah, if we have a larger catch size limit, the population will tend to have larger muskies, therefore fishermen will have larger catches. Okay. And you said this is world-renowned. I've heard of St. Clair, but I don't exactly know where it's at. Where Where is this Where is this infamous lake? So I kind of feel like Lake St. Clair is the forgotten Great Lake oh. because <laughs> it's in the Great Lakes system. It connects Lake Huron to Lake Erie um, through Lake uh, St. Clair River and the Detroit River. 
Um, some people call it the heart of the Great Lakes. Okay. I could see that. Yeah. But does it have any impact of the kind of, where I know we're hearing a lot about Lake Erie's water quality and algal blooms and things like that right now. Do you think this is a vulnerable lake to some of those effects as well? Or is it fairly clean at this point? How Do we know much about that? I definitely think that Lake Sinclair is um, vulnerable to the similar kinds of things that are happening to Lake Erie because it is so shallow. Um, and it's so close to a lot of the industry. But I think that a reason it hasn't been as affected as Lake Erie is because it's part of that connecting channel, so a lot of the water gets flushed through. Okay, that's great. So, Ellen, you spent a lot of your summer with fishermen and fishing for these muskies, and we want to hear all about that. And to get us into really into the mood of hearing those stories, we're actually going to go to a song first. Um, this is one of the most famous fishing songs called Fish and Blues by Taj Mahal, which is a blues artist who's well known for incorporating elements of world music into his style. It's hard to imagine a song that's more perfectly embodies everything that there is to love about fishing. So let's go there and then come back to Ellen's great stories. Awesome. If you got good bait, oh, here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites, if you got good bait, I'm a going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing, and my baby going fishing too. I went on down to my favorite fishing hole, baby, grab me a pole and a line. Throw my pole on and call a nine pound cabbage. Now you know I'm drawing them home supper time, prove it. Any fish bites, if you got good Your 
This is It's Hot in Here. Welcome back to WCBN-FM. We are here with Ellen Spooner talking about muskies fishing Lake St. Clair. Let's review. Those are fish with really big teeth that get really big and that people fish because they're really big and they have really big teeth. (laughs) Exactly. That's the draw. (laughs) So, Ellen, um, you know, I assume to be able to study the fish, you must catch the fish first. That is correct. So will you tell us a little bit about how you've gone about catching those fish? We want some stories. This has (laughs) got to be good. Yeah, definitely. Um, So when I was starting to think of um, ways that I could catch the fish, um, I came across charter captains who it is their sole job to go out and find these muskies. People pay charters to take them because they know the area and they know where the fish are most likely to be. So I approached a few charter captains and um, one of them said, yeah, I'd love to help you in your research, which was great. Um, So we'd go out on the boat with him. He'd show me the places where they're most likely to be found. Um, And yeah, we'd catch them with a hook and line. So just like a fishing rod and he had specific bait that target muskies that are larger um, so the smaller fish don't usually go after them, but the muskies do. So are they using any kind of um, radar or machine? I mean, how are they located? These are big fish, so presumably they would show up on some kind of radar or I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So most muskie fishermen have a fish finder on them, um, and that is kind of like what you were saying. It sends a signal down to the bottom and reflects back up. So if there are fish down below, they are aware that they're there. But a lot of the time, the fishermen just use experience um, to know where these fish fish are. Um, And I think that's the best way. How are you connected to these fishermen? Did you just have to Google them? And (laughs) And I was going to say, like you said, I finally found one who (laughs) other ones like, what? No way. We don't want you tracking fish on our. Well, so the thing is, is they have paying customers who are on the boat with them. And the work that I do, while it doesn't kill the muskies, it takes some time. So I see that's tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to balance that. Yeah. So they have to be willing to allow me to do my work for a little bit, which takes time away from them being able to fish. Which is what exactly? Like, what are you actually doing to the fish once they're reeled in? So uh, once they're reeled in, we put them in this live well, which is basically a container with fresh running water through it to let them recover. Because after being reeled in, the muskies are usually really tired and fish get stressed easily. How long does it take in to reel in a four-foot fish? That sounds like a struggle. It it is. It is. And I think that's the large draw for fishermen. Um, Muskies especially take longer. They can usually take up to an hour sometimes. and fierce competition. Yeah, you you definitely have to have some good arm strength. Um, That was something I learned and gained over the summer. (laughs) Learned the hard way, I take it. Yes, yes. They were just like, oh, here, reel it in. And I was like, okay, Uh, are they here yet? (laughs) Yeah. So once they're in this live well, what? once they've recovered, what happens? Okay, so once they've recovered, my end goal is to get their stomach content and determine the species. So what I first have to do is put them on this electro-narcosis device. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big word. It's a big word, but it's not actually that complicated. It's basically just a cradle with a net that we lay the fish on, and it has wires running through it attached to a 9-volt battery. And when I turn it on, it stuns the fish and relaxes their muscles so they stay still while I need to do my procedure on them. Otherwise, they would begin fighting again. Um, 
And so the way that I get their stomach content is I built this contraption along with uh, people at the DNR who helped me come up with the idea. You built it. You conceptualized and built it. I ha I got the idea from uh, the people at the DNR, so I didn't come up with it, but I we did build it. Yeah, um, that's yeah. Great. We we went to the hardware store, um, got all the supplies, and put it together. So I got some of that under my belt now. Too. That's amazing. It's kind of micro engineering of ecological field research methods. Yeah, isn't it? it's like a mix of engineering and ecology. That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> it was really interesting because in building it, not only do you have to think of its functionality, but you have to think of how it affects the animal. Mm -hmm. So we had to like blunt the edges because I'll be inserting it in the throat, um, and we don't want it to harm the fish. Um, and yeah. so you're like those human doctors that do, um, you know, oscopies of <laughs> different, you know, like go in down the trachea and check out whether your stomach's okay and stuff like that, except for fish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you definitely have to be careful how you build it not to harm them. And you have to be kind of calm and steady, I guess, mm -hmm. with these huge teeth. Chomping yes. on your arm. Like, how yes. does that work? So, I'm thinking of Jaws right now. I'm like, how are you? Like, okay, just hold still, big guy. We're almost done. <laughs> are they sedate? I mean, like, how do you do that? Yeah. So there is a specific tool called a fish jaw opener. Um, and it basically unlatches and you put it in their mouth and it opens their mouth for you. So you don't have to actually stick your hands in there and open it. Um, and then I have this long tube connected to a bilge pump, which is in the water. And I put the tube in their throat very gently um, and being careful of the teeth. And uh, it pumps water into their stomach. So any content that's in their stomach is then dislodged and regurgitated back through the mouth. Okay. And what's on the musky menu? What do muskies eat? What comes out? Well, that's the question that I am trying to determine. But so far, what I've found is um, a lot of white suckers, a lot of drums. Um, I found a channel cat, which that's interesting because channel cats have very uh, large spines. So you'd think it wouldn't be comfortable to digest. Wow. <laughs> Or maybe that was just a really hungry musky, an unusually hungry musky. It, it could have been. It could have been. Um, a lot of people think that they also eat uh, yellow perch, um, walleye, and they have been known to cannibalize and eat their own species as well. <laughs> Smaller. This is not getting more attractive, this species, as the show goes <laughs> on. I don't know. It's starting to sound like a bad day of fishing. <laughs> Which... Which we have the perfect song for because, in fact, a bad day of fishing, apparently, still beats most other days, right? I would agree. So let's go to that song before we come back for more. Got up at dawn just to be out on the water Weatherman said hot and getting hotter, but he didn't say nothing about it. Raining like hell. Always a bad day of fishing beats a good day of anything else. Had the big one on, and man, I would have got him, but he took my pole straight down to the bottom, leaving me. Nothing but a big old story to tell All here A bad day of fishing beats a good day If anything else We should probably 
go to work, I mean everybody does Instead of sitting out here in the middle of nowhere Working on a pretty good bus Didn't get a damn thing, as you could say we took a licking Tonight's fish fries gonna taste like chicken But we did just fine, if I do say so myself day of fishing beats a good day of anything else. Play that guitar. WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is It's Hot in Here, your go-to show for environmental news and views and grooves, too. That last groove was by Billy Currington, a country artist from Georgia whose 2010 album Enjoy Yourselves had a bunch of easygoing songs on it about kind of the, the good life, living off the land, hanging out, nothing too simple, nothing too simple to have fun with. So his his song, A Bad Day of Fishing, beats a good day of anything else. We thought we'd play just because we were in the studio today, Becca and Rebecca and Andrea, with our guest, Alan Spooner, who was talking to us about basically wrangling big old... <laughs> musky fish on charter boats yep. this summer in Lake St. Clair, Michigan. Am I right? Yeah. So I was, we were just wondering how in the world it felt to be, I mean, I, I'm assuming that you've told us a little bit about your charter clients and charter operators. We're guessing you're one of the few girls out there on those boats. Is that the case when you're doing this field ecology work? Yes, that is very true in the experience that I've had so far. Um, all the charter captains that I've spoken with have been male, and most of their customers have been male, besides the guy who brings his wife out with him. Now, would you say, I mean, is that true across the board of sport fishing? I know Becca was talking earlier about different kinds of sport fishing and, and the differences among them. Are they all pretty male dominated or are there different types yeah i can from the sport fishermen that i've seen and talked to um it's definitely i think a male dominated field um i also worked with the dnr this past summer at their lake st Clair fisheries research station and i was the only female in the office um but i think that was kind of cool um i liked being the one to segue into it and kind of show that hey i'm a girl but i can do this too 
That's fantastic. I mean, I think you you have to kind of want to step in there and just take it on. But were there times when it felt like a challenge or like it wasn't such a great fit or you had to kind of convince yourself or others? Yeah, there were definitely times um, when, especially like you said, wrangling with the muskies when it was like, (laughs) when it was kind of, I was like, they were handling the fish and I was like, look, I can do this too, you know? So I kind of had to like put my foot down and be like, okay, I'll be the one to take that take them out of the tank I'll be the one to handle it you know like you can trust like no me. no really let me yeah yeah basically wow yeah so it was a really good experience and I really enjoyed it mm-hmm. that sounds like a very interesting dynamic to have a lot of men and one woman on a boat um, an interesting experience no doubt yeah um, definitely uh, especially when it comes to going to the bathroom <laughs> oh okay. you know that's right <laughs> Yes. What? Hmm. So. So a lot of the boats luckily <laughs> had a bathroom on them with a door. So that's where I would that, go. That could end up impacting your research design in the long run if you're selectively biased toward craft that have a restroom. <laughs> These are the things that, you know, change the course of science, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, something that I dealt with. But it was really interesting because a couple weekends ago, I ran into this older lady who was hiking and I started telling her about what I was doing. And she said that when she was my age, she also tried to work for the DNA. And they told her that we will never hire a woman. So I, I yeah, yeah. So I feel like the DNR has come a long way. I think they're a great organization, and I think now they are very open Mm -hmm. to hiring whoever has the skills they need. But it's just well, you know, you're right though, Ellen, to point out that this is more about institutions of resource management and not just about fishing. I, I think there's no better visual example of that than if you walk into our building, the Dana Building. Either entrance to the building is now, you know, you're you're hit immediately by the visual image of the School of Natural Resources faculty back in the 60s or 70s, which is a bunch of really lovely white guys in suits standing under the trees that one of them planted on the diag back mm-hmm. when. Mm-hmm. And then you cut to the faculty group photo of today, and we are a much, much more diverse crew and a lot more skirts. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that change has been going on, not just in the field, but in the institutions. I remember when I was a graduate student on the campus of Yale University, we used to all joke and call it the male school of forestry and environmental studies with an M Mm -hmm. because there were so few female faculty. So these are, you know, gradual changes in the face of environmental science and environmental knowledge, which itself is often kind of feminized compared to hard biology type stuff, right? Yeah, Which is interesting. So... I was going to say, I think it's very powerful, though, um, that being said, that you are helping to make headways in some of these fields and represent um, women out there. I may be biased towards that opinion, but it's great. You're doing great work. Absolutely. Ellen, before we go, I just want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about where you hope, um, you know, your own work is going to go in the future and and maybe just your hopes in general for the field that you're in. Yeah, um, I hope that the research that I do can continue um, with fisheries and help fish populations in the Great Lakes uh, continue to um, create um, recreational opportunities for people and women um, and also to recover and stabilize. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Um, but it, it is getting hot in here. I will yes. say that. So, <laughs> yes. Take my sweater off. We are starting to peel off the sweaters and scarves and, and really get down to business here. But I love your goals. They are 
on the one hand, they don't seem so ambitious to stabilize a population of fish, right? And yet we understand from talking to you today, that's that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And it means not only work by scientists, but work by the practitioners and sports people who engage that species. And I love, yeah, we love hearing about how you're bringing all those things together. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed being on the radio and sharing my story. Sure did. Wrangle on. Wrangle <laughs> on. <laughs> but listeners, don't touch that dial because up next we have another amazing master's student from the School of Natural Resources and Environment joining us to talk about a project that she's working on uh, with a team of students about non-point source pollution. And as I promised, we will define what that even means. But first, to get us into the mood of talking about rivers and freshwater yet again, let's listen to a great CCR tune, Green River. Welcome back to It's Hot In Here on WCBN-FM. We were just talking to Ellen Spooner about her work with muskies in Lake St. Clair. And Ellen was having such a great time that she's decided to just join us for the rest of the show, which we are so delighted about. Thank you, Ellen. You're welcome. Um, This is is what happens on It's Hot In Here. Last week we had a guest, Sam Molnar, who's going to co-host with us in the future as well. So... Keep rolling. We keep rolling. Yep. We're just reeling them in. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) 
So Ellen is one of the students at the School of Natural Resources Environment who is working on a thesis. Um, another group of students are working on master's projects, which are essentially interdisciplinary problem-solving experiences um, conducted by master's degree students in groups for clients that are actually out there tackling environmental issues, really of all kinds. Um, and Julia Elkin, who is a master's student in the field of, I think, environmental policy and planning, right on. as well as conservation. Sprinkling the ecology um, pretty heavy in there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Julia will be joining, or is joining us, is here right now, um, and is going to talk to us about the master's project that she's working with, with a group of how many people? We are six students, and maybe I'll just roll straight into what this whole master's project has such a strong title to it. I love that, <laughs> deep in my voice. Um, so we're six students, and we really saw the charge and the opportunity to do an interdisciplinary project, and we rolled with it. So we're pulling six folks from across the entire spectrum of what the School of Natural Resources offers. So we've got conservation ecologists, modelers, policy folk, environmental justice component. And we're all coming together to tackle an issue that really needs every corner of the environmental discipline. So I'm afraid to say this title is not so snazzy. <laughs> I love a snazzy title, but I'll lay it on you. We are Evaluating Approaches for Controlling Non-Point Source Pollution and reducing harmful algal blooms in the mommy watershed. What is non-point non pollution? Non-point source pollution. Oh, it's a mouthful. Yes, NPS. It <laughs> Once you get the slang down, you can throw this on people after the radio show. You'll sound so in the know. But I guess to understand non-point source pollution, the easier concept is point source pollution. And I think of what could I look at and point at and say that is is spitting out some pollution. So you could think of like... The tailpipe on your car is a point source, right? You know what's coming out of the tailpipe of your car. You could measure it. You can watch it. You can change it. Would a factory, for example, that's dumping, you know, sludge or something into a river be part of point source Excellent. pollution? Yep, okay, definitely. Okay, all right. We're on, on a good way. So we got our point sources, the things <laughs> we can point at, our factories, our toilet outflows, all that stuff. And then non-point source pollution is... You know something's getting out into the system, but you can't say specifically where exactly it's coming from or how much is coming from each place. So when you think of a non-point source, and what we're really thinking of, we're thinking of what washes off of people's lawns, what comes off of a road, how are agricultural fields, you know, there's not one spot where an agricultural field spits itself into. It's just kind of a, a big area, many of them across a really big landscape. So that's non-point source, the stuff that's really hard to pin down. Yeah, it sounds complex. And uh, you guys have decided you want to try to pin it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're taking the untrackable invisible and trying to find ways to conceive of it, to engage people in the dialogues about it. Um, and to do that, this is actually a really active conversation. So for folks listening, probably have some familiarity with Western Lake Erie. Um, hit really big in the news this summer. Sure did. Um, that's kind of a cool thing. Maybe that's the way I can like thread into what I'm talking about here. So we had a sort of point source issue, mm -hmm. which if you heard about the water crisis this summer in Toledo, you had two days in August, August 2nd and 3rd, right on, because it was my birthday. <laughs> so you had 400,000 people whose water supply, which is a, a point source, a, a pipe, out in Western Lake Erie that pulls water in to be treated to come into your taps and your homes, it got blocked by a little bloom of algae sat right on top of that intake valve. 
uh, uh, algae called microcystis, which is actually toxic to humans and mammals. So that was a point problem. The pipe had a mat of algae sitting above it, and you couldn't use the water. The reason that there was a mat of algae is because of the non-point source issues, all the things that have been washing into the water Mm -hmm. over the year, over the summer, all the stuff that comes in, and that stuff is fertilizers largely holding phosphorus, and they made that algae grow. So our non-point contributions built this mat. So what we're trying to do is think, how do you stop that from happening? How do you make the algae mats get smaller and smaller? How do you make them hopefully disappear, get our biology back in balance? So that means looking at what people are doing across huge areas of the landscape. So we're considering this giant area, the Maumee watershed, all the water that pours and funnels down into western Lake Erie. And how are people managing the land? And what can we change? Wow. Sounds like you've got quite the task ahead of you. <laughs> who are you working with on this in terms of uh, like who's your client or your partner organization? Mm-hmm. So our client is the Great Lakes Commission. They're a group that are formed by an interstate agreement back in 1955. Then Congress gave them a thumbs up around 68. And then Canadian provinces got involved because we are an international issue. You know, these lakes share boundaries on both sides of the border. Um So it's a a really active group. We're working with their office here in Ann Arbor. And as a client, they said, you know, we want to look at some creative, out-of-the-box thinking on how you can approach these complex nutrient pollution issues um, and just have some student input that might look at a bigger area beyond what's currently being done, because clearly what's being done right now is not sufficient. And that's why we're seeing these increasing algal blooms year after year. So what are the what are some of the methods that you're evaluating and and how are you even like are you guys in the lab are you you said interviews how is that how's that going So I was listening in on Ellen's interview and I thought oh that sounds so fun so like out there on the boat I'm afraid my storyline is not quite as dynamic in that regard but I still find it really exciting Um so we're working these complex issues have been engaging people for over 30 years 40 years Um So a lot of it is finding dialogue, you know, speaking with economists at the Nature Conservancy, at Wildlife Federation, um, looking at government agencies. So Army Corps of Engineers, Ohio EPA. um, I could list a lot of partners Um, sort of reaching around, seeing what sort of data is out there. But really talking about state public, private, NGO, the whole kind of gamut of of what we think about as actors and what we call like hybrid governance solutions kind of. Yeah, excellent. It is very much that. So it's looking at this huge network of different stakeholders and actors, figuring out what's each one's capacity to take action. And the way we do this, um, there is a lot of dialogue. We've been doing interviews with the soil and water conservation districts. We can think of as sort of like the first stop shop for um, farmers who who may want to take action on their land and are looking for the appropriate method or approach. So speaking with them about what they do. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I as a you know suburban homeowner, I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking, wow, I'm so glad I put that rain barrel into my <laughs> backyard. And But if I were a farm owner, it would be all happening at a much more complicated and challenging scale, wouldn't it? I mean, that's yep. it's not easy for them. Yep. So we're, we're thrilled to see those rain barrels. And at the same time, these, these are much larger scales. So when you're dealing with larger scales, so many different actors, you know, it's a 80% of this land is in agriculture. So we're talking about over 4,000 square miles. So we've been using a lot of models. That's that's a lot of our method. A model doesn't spit out an answer, 
at all, but it does provide different lenses on how you can ask a question, how you can see, okay, if we got people not just using rain barrels, but changing how they till their land, how they treat their crops, what they're choosing to plant, what kind of changes in the quality of the water could we expect to see? So a lot of it's modeling, a lot of it's conversations with active researchers in the region, because there's a lot of debates on these topics. What really is the problem? Why did that approach 10 years ago work or not work? So it's a lot of, I would say it's a lot of listening before as much us speaking outward, um, which is an interesting aspect of a project like this. Well, as someone trained as an anthropologist, though, I can see how that would be really crucial to figuring out where are the places that you can successfully intervene in these systems and where people already perceive a problem. I mean, with all these kinds of environmental issues, whether it's musky fish you know, populations or non-point source pollution, one of the big questions is how bad do things have to get before people perceive it as a problem, right? Yeah, yep, exactly. And do you feel like this issue, if particularly this summer with the media attention, is getting to that threshold where you, you're getting traction and you might be able to get some traction with this stuff socially? I think we are definitely there. Um, I think there's a lot of voices that need to be heard. Defi- um, for sure, you know, you got to be attentive to the whole spectrum of stakeholders, but the energy behind this. I, I'm not a Michigander. I wish I could claim it. I love this state. Mm-hmm. But coming in and, and realizing how much dedication is behind approaching these issues, because they're critical. It's our water. You know, that's the thing you need to know you've got. Um, so I think we've definitely hit that juncture. President Obama spoke this week about efforts exactly like our project and one focused here in the Mommy Watershed. So it's an exciting time to be doing this work. And just to add to that, I remember this summer when I was working with the DNR, we took some trips down to Lake Erie and we saw the algal blooms firsthand. And when I remember driving our boat through the water and it was just like streaks of green, like following behind our boat and a fish jumped out of the water. And when it jumped back in, you could just see the tiny tiny hole cleared from the algae around it. And it's like the DNR were like, this is what people need to see to have something be changed. And it was just crazy. It was mind opening. Yeah, that's very powerful to see that effect um, in person, um, the reality of the situation, not only the interaction of what's happening because of this non- non-point source pollution and its effect on algae, but also its effect and these interactions among species such as such as fish. Yeah. So um, we actually, I think, have a caller from a community organization that's also working on, um, you know, freshwater health. Um, Let's go very quickly to a song, but then I'd love to have Julia and Ellen stay here in the studio with us before we uh, and just talk a little bit to Jason Frenzel, who we will be talking to in a minute about the work that... um, yeah, the Huron River Watershed Council is doing to also prevent some of these problems. But first, let's go to Johnny Cash, Big River. About the biggest river of all. Now I taught the weeping willow how to cry. And I showed the clouds how to cover up a clear blue sky. And the tears that I cried for that woman are gonna flood you, big river, and I'm gonna sit right here until I die. I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it tore me up every time I heard her draw Southern Drone. Then I heard my dream went back downstream, cavorting in Davenport, and I followed you, big river, when you called. Oh, get my 
St. Louis later on down the river. A freighter said she's been here, but she's gone, boy, she's gone. I found her trail in Memphis, but she just walked up the bluff. She raised a few eyebrows and then she went on down alone. Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge? Welcome back. This is It's Hot In Here on WCBN-FM. Today we are talking about freshwater health and have many wonderful people in the studio with us um, talking about their work at the School of Natural Resources and Environment. And on the phone, we have someone from the Huron River Watershed Council, which is, I believe, the oldest environmental organization dedicated to river protection in this area. Uh, Jason Frenzel is their volunteer and outreach coordinator. Jason, are you with us? I hope you can hear me. I can hear you just loud and clear. It just got hotter in here with you on the phone. Thank you for calling in. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you've been able to follow the conversation until now, but we've uh, started with a big fish, moved into entire lacustrine ecosystems and non-point source pollution as that affects fish and people. And now we're really thinking about this uh, watershed scale that you guys work at and, and, and adding that layer on and thinking about the tributaries and the entire system beyond any given body of water. We're so excited to have you on the phone. Super. Yeah, it's one of the one of the beauties of working at the watershed scale is um, you can see some of the large scale dilemmas and, and issues that were being talked about um, earlier, and you can translate the homeowners uh, sort of in my backyard. There's this lake or this creek, and, and sort of meandering between those two places is is a really rich um, and vibrant location for us, and we enjoy working with with both sides. So just last week, Jason, we heard about a really great event that you guys put on called the River Roundup. And from what I know of it, it seemed like small teams of people came together and were collecting samples of bugs that live in our streams. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the catches is to get everybody on air um, to say benthic macroinvertebrate. Can everybody say benthic macroinvertebrate? Benthic macroinvertebrates. <laughs> uh, so benthic meaning bottom dwelling, macro meaning you can see it with your eye, and invertebrate meaning uh, it doesn't have a backbone. So these are bugs that live in the water. And just like the canary in the coal mine, they are um, they're the indicators of water, water quality health. So they, um, they live in the water for 6 to 18 months, and um, the diversity and the specific species that we find in any given location um, is an indication of what level of or lack of pollution has happened in that area. So it doesn't tell us what has gone wrong or is going right, um, but it tells us that things are generally going right or going wrong. We've been doing this, um, this river roundup for 22 years now. So we're at the place where we can see some distinct trending um, in the data, see what, what areas are getting better and what areas are getting worse. Um, and the big push for the, uh, for the outing is that we get a lot of volunteers out to sample water quality in their own sort of backyard or in their own municipalities or back home. Um, so getting some ownership over our, our the waters of the state or the local waterways is, is also really important to us. And Jason, why? Why do you guys go via that route rather than just raise money and have quote-unquote experts doing this, um, you know, perhaps scientists or whatnot? Why, why is there such a strong focus on getting people like me out in their backyards? <laughs> exactly like you. Um, <laughs> uh, well, we do take membership uh, donations also, but um, the, the catch here 
for us is, or, or, or perhaps the easiest way to put it, is um, when we think about um, ecosystem health, I like to use the analogy of human health. So we all know that, you know, we shouldn't drink too much, we shouldn't smoke, we should exercise. But when the doctor says, oh, you have a heart problem and you need to change your diet so that you can grow up to meet your grandchildren and things like that, all of a sudden it becomes very personal and we understand the implications of our actions and we are much more likely to do something about those, um, those sort of ingrained um, bad habits, if you will. And the same holds true for ecosystem health and sort of the interaction between society or the individuals and the ecosystems that we live within. So saying, you know, these are the best things to do for the environment. We all hear those messages all the time. But to be able to go to someone, a landowner, a municipality, and say, these are the things that are going wrong in your backyard, and um, everybody here is contributing to it, like the non-point source pollution we were talking about earlier on the show, this is yours, you're doing this, um, definitely gets people to reframe um, why and how important things are. Um, and one of the avenues for doing that, so the data collection itself is that, um, but also getting, um, getting volunteers, citizens, students involved um, allows that messaging to get disseminated into the community. It's, it's personally identified by those individuals. So we're educating and empowering the citizenry through the study itself. Wow, 22 years is a long time for this organization to have been doing what it's doing and reaching out to different community members, students, um, and members of Ann Arbor alike. What What is the data telling us? What is the data that is being collected um, leading us to conclude? Yes, I, I can't comment on, on the, the data from this past week because we haven't analyzed all the all the critters yet. Um, we'll get to that over the next um, over the next few weeks. We do have a few open spots this Sunday at our identification day. So if any other people that are listening want to come and volunteer to, to learn about bugs, um, we'll be in the classroom uh, setting doing that. Um, but to answer your question, um, there are locations throughout the watershed um, that are generally trending a little bit better and generally trending a little bit worse. Um, the places that are getting worse um, uh, tend to be places that are being developed, um, you know, new residential, new commercial development. Um, obviously, we've had a, a lack of that for the last few years, which has been actually really nice for the environment. But um, that's starting up again, and we're starting to see those developments and the, and the impacts therein. Um, and, and I want to make sure that the listeners know the Watershed Council and I personally, we're not against development. It's wise use of technology um, to offset environmental hazards or problems that are associated with development that's really important. Um, runoff that happens because of impervious surface is extremely damaging to local waterways. Um, it is a huge portion of the cause of non-point source pollution in, in many, many ways. And, but we know good ways to make sure that that new housing and new roads don't impact um, the environment as much. And so in places where um, there are really um, uh, environmentally progressive rules and regulations and those regulations are being um, managed and upheld well, um, we see actual improvement happening. So um, I, we, we love to give examples of the local um, uh, Washtenaw County Water Resource Commissioner's Office is very progressive with their environmental rules and how they engage new development 
um, the city of Ann Arbor just in, um, started a new stormwater um, regulation where any development or significant redevelopment of land has to hold to a much higher standard than um, state and national um, norms. And so we're seeing with that, in places like in town here, we're seeing positive stormwater and water quality improvement when land is being redevelopment, re- redeveloped. So when Kroger's gets changed over to something else, they have to put in modern technology best management practices, and that is impacting those local waterways drastically. So okay. it's really about, about how we're managing our use of land. Okay, so we're seeing here that um, you're describing very eloquently how these non-point source pollutions can have um, a negative effect on the watershed. And in some cases, um, there are ways to negate this. Some areas of the watershed are more healthy, others less so. What are the implications for how how is the Huron watershed, how is the health of the Huron watershed um, affecting other areas? Um, is it is it, for instance, leading into certain lakes, um, such Julie, one of our previous guests, who's still in the studio, is talking about Lake Erie. Are there any larger implications for the health of this watershed? Oh, absolutely. And, and hi, Julie. Um, we, um, you know, uh, the Huron dumps into Lake Erie, um, so we are part of that problem. Um, it looks like from most of the analysis we're not a super large um, contributor to the Lake Erie problems that were being talked about earlier, but we definitely should take care of our own. Um, we see, um, more to your point, we see um, algal blooms in Ford and Belleville Lakes on a regular basis. So this is just um, just downstream from Ypsilanti, um, and those are all a result from really, really similar situations, um, non-point source pollution from agriculture and from road runoff um, and wastewater treatment plants um, that lead to algal blooms in, in, our, own, in our own river. Um, so we have localized problems that we're seeing, um, and, then, and then that definitely does... Um, those hit downstream into Lake Erie. We also see um, uh, impairments in our local creeks for various different things, from E. coli to temperature, phosphorus, um, and just sediment um, sediment loading. So we have we have lots to work on, certainly. Um, but in the last thirty years, things have gotten a lot better. We don't we don't have rivers like um, lighting on fire in the Great Lakes anymore, which is nice. What rivers lighting on fire? I'm not from Michigan, um, so I am not. <laughs> I'm not familiar with this phenomenon. Yeah, so there were, a number, um, if I recall correctly, five different rivers in the Great Lakes area that um, caught on fire multiple, multiple times in the 50s and 60s, um, which was really a significant portion of why the Clean Water Act came into existence. Um, so we've come a long way nationally and, and locally. <laughs> we sure have. Um, thank you, Jason, for that really excellent overview of all of the awesome work that the Huron River Watershed Council is doing. Um, but yeah, before we wrap up, I just I want to go to one more song, which is, you know, can't have a show about rivers and not invite Miss Mitchell to join us. Joni Mitchell's very, you know, well-known song, River. Let's just hear it for just a minute before we wrap up with Jason, Julia, and Ellen here about um, freshwater health. Cutting down trees. They're- 
They're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. Oh, I wish I had a river I could skate away on. But it don't snow here. It stays pretty green. I'm gonna make a lot of money, then I'm gonna quit this crazy scene. I wish I had a river I could skate away on. I wish I had a river so long I would teach my feet to. just such a beautiful song. Welcome back, everyone, to WCBN-FM. This is It's Hot in Here, and we are talking today about to conclude up on our discussion about fresh water and environmental quality. Um, and while that song was going on, we had a really interesting discussion here in the studio. And um, Julie, uh, one of our guests, was going, Julia, my apologies, was going to, was asking questions, and I figured it would be a good time to open up um, our discussion amongst each of our guests. It sounds like there's, there's there's a lot of effort happening on this issue of fresh water, and it sounds like many different stakeholders need to come come together. There needs to be a groundswell, groundswell of support in order to really move forward on some of these issues. So, Julia, you had a question for for Jason. Yeah, thank you, Becca. And hi, Jason. Pleased to meet you. Mm. Um, I was wondering, so in the project I'm looking at, we're, we're so focused on the, the agricultural landscape and particularly different best management practices and modeling out what is best suited to do on which areas of the landscape and what are the results? And the reason I saw a connection here is I'm wondering with the Huron River Watershed Council, do you all similarly consider, you know, what are the the options and tools available to homeowners, to local businesses? And are there resources that, that listeners can look at to find out about different best management practices that help those little bugs in the stream and kind of coming full circle on this topic? Yeah, um, and, and I think like you illustrate, the depending on what um, what home ownership or land management looks like for each of the listeners, um, there are very different types of um, of best management practices or, or techniques to, to manage stormwater and water quality runoff. Um, for a lot of the urban area, we look at um, low impact design, um, uh, so green green infrastructure. So this is things like a lot of people have heard of um, detention ponds, but the, the newer version are, um, are bioswales or rain gardens. Mm-hmm. These are um, infiltration areas that can be put in very small locations to try to grab the water before it runs off of a property. Um, that's very residential, but it can, it's been upscaled in some cases um, to, to larger regional um, um, practices also. So I, I think that's the, the best one that fits, but we definitely work with agricultural producers and, and commercial uh, owners also. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, I believe Ellen has a question for Jason as well. 
Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Jason. Um, nice to talk with you. So as you were talking about um, bringing this to the people in their backyards, I started to think about my backyard. And I live in an apartment complex, which is right next to the Huron River and right next to Argo Livery. Um, Another one? Yes. <laughs> that's where I live. Um, and so I was kind of wondering what are the impacts of um, the recreational activities that go on there. I know me and my friends, Andrea, we've gone paddleboarding and um, we like to go tubing down the river. And I was wondering if you guys have noticed any impacts from such a high recreational use of the river around there. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting. Um, we see definitely with the high recreational use, we definitely see more trash, so physical pollution um, in waterways. And, and, you know, I want to take the higher ground and, and think that generally it's accidental. Um, but most of the most of the trash we find where people are um, doing the activities that you mentioned, just just general fun use. Um, the Idea River cleanups with volunteers all the time and in areas um, where there's that type of use are the two things that we find the most are flip-flops or actually singular, <laughs> singular flip-flops. Just, just one. Um, you only find just one. Uh, right. And unfortunately, beer cans. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate to bring out families of volunteers um, to go clean up the river and find, um, find stuff like that. Um, so there is more of that because of the use, but I don't think that it's a direct correlation. Like, it's, you know, 10 times more users, 10 times more trash. I, I, don't, I, I firmly don't believe that myself. I have no study for that, but just my anecdotal cleanups. Um, uh, but on the on the opposite side of the coin, we have a lot more people experiencing nature and the vibrancy of the river and contributing to the economies around the waterway, which are all very, very positive things. And so um, if I had to enter into a conversation of the pros and cons, I would be really it would have to be a really intricate discussion um, because I think that those the, the two sides of the coin there are really important to consider while having either conversation. Yeah. Um, I, you know, on that note, I think we could con uh, continue all kinds of intricate discussions, especially about these trade-offs that you're talking about. Um, and I would love to do that. And I really hope all of you will join us on the show again in the future. But for now, I just have to say thank you to Ellen, to Julia, and to Jason for joining us and talking about the fantastic work that you've been doing. And we'll just remind our listeners that we're going to be posting links to their organizations, their projects, and resources they think might be useful for anyone who wants to learn more about these issues all together or respectively. That'll be on our weekly blog and MP3 archive, which is at uh, us. we like to say. And so please look for the update and the follow-up that'll be online. And you can also stream this show if you want to listen again or share it with others after the fact. Yep. And a big thank you as well to our audio engineer, Cameron Bothner, for holding it down and playing all that fantastic music for us. Thanks, Cameron. Um, and, you know, we realize goodbyes are sad, but if you're not, it's hot in here. We'll be back two weeks from today on WCBN-FM. Ann, Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor. <laughs> in the meantime, let's listen to Julie London, um, whose beautiful rendition, Crimea River, well, you know, I can stay away from the cliche, Crimea River. So let's just <laughs> go out on that. Bye, folks. And thank you to everybody who joined us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.
child, you can cry me a river, cry me a river. I cried a river over you. Cried a river over you. 